This is a Federal News Network podcast. For more than a year, the National Security Agency has been sharing cybersecurity threat information with defense industrial-based companies. The idea is to correlate NSA signal intelligence with malicious activity the companies see on their networks. Here with an update, the director of NSA's Cybersecurity Collaboration Center, Morgan Adamski. Ms. Adamski, good to have you on. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks so much for um, having me to talk about the Collaboration Center. And just before we get to what you've learned in the past year, just brief us on what the Collaboration Center exactly does. Absolutely. So when we stood up the cybersecurity directorate at NSA, we knew that one of the keys to our success was being able to directly engage with our industry counterparts in a way where we could share unique and timely information at speed. And to be able to do that, we needed to ensure that we had a space that our partners could come to. We had collaboration, unclassified platforms to share information quickly. And so the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center is actually this very unique unclassified facility outside of the fence line, right off of 295, that our partners are able to come visit us, share what they're seeing in real time, and we're able to share our insights as well back and forth. So it's a great way for us to share information. And what's an example of the type of information they might share? So a lot of our industry partners, right, they see a lot of malicious activity on any given day. They see it. They have a lot of noise on their networks. They may not understand it. They may not know who's responsible for it. And they have a part of the picture. And just like NSA, we have part of the picture as well. We're really focusing on those foreign cyber threats. And so we bring those two pieces together and we try to figure out and gain a better understanding of what the comprehensive picture looks like. And so it's really about drilling down into those threats and being able to have a conversation. And they bring things like network logs, for example. They bring in a a thumb drive or something with the activity (laughs) they think is suspicious. Any type of network logs or IPs or various things that they think are indicators of compromise that we may be able to look at and say, okay, like we think this is malicious. We think this is coming from a nation state actor. Here's the type of mitigation guidance that we would leverage to protect ourselves from this in the future. So it's really a great conversation right now occurring. And how many companies participate in this? So we have a little over 100 partners that we work with on any given day. And that's anyone in the defense industrial base and their service providers. Wow, 100 companies. That's a pretty good number. And you mentioned that they come to this unclassified facility off the BW Parkway. God bless them for hazarding that road. But uh, do they need to come in physically in order to collaborate with you? No, that's actually um, the unique part of the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center is we stood it up during a pandemic. So we had to figure out how to do collaboration without physically being able to be in the same room with our industry partners. So we do a lot of our collaboration virtually. Our partners are all over the U.S. And so we do things like chats and just say, hey, here's what we're seeing. It's not typical for NSA to be in an open environment and collaborating at the unclassified level. This is really the dramatic change for us. And where does the NSA knowledge that you have, the center has, come from? Years and years of NSA insights on nation foreign cyber threats, our signals intelligence mission, as well as our old information assurance, but our new and improved cybersecurity mission. So all of those insights over the years actually feed into these relationships. And what about the issue of if they reveal something that's happening on their network, that they are absolved from, uh uh-oh, guess what, we have to arrest you or something of that nature? Yeah, so all of our relationships with our industry partners are cooperative. It's a mutually beneficial relationship, which means that they bring information to us 
open and transparent, we do the same. So we do not act as a contractual arm, our oversight and compliance mechanism for the, the department or NSA. It's really about that open, transparent collaboration. We're speaking with Morgan Adamski. She is director of the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center at the National Security Agency, or we should say just outside the National Security Agency. And because I remember once a CEO, this was a number of years ago, of a very famous cybersecurity company had a breach and it made headlines. And the first entity that he phoned was the National Security Agency because the implications of algorithms that shouldn't have been cracked were cracked. And it touched off a whole national security type of apparatus getting into action. We're talking about something lower level than this, aren't we? Yeah, so we're having those conversations every day with our industry partners to understand the extent of the breach. We're supporting whole of government efforts like things like solar winds and the Microsoft Exchange vulnerability. So we're participating in those conversations. The unique thing about NSA and the Cybersecurity Directorate is we've really brought together the power of understanding the foreign nation state cyber threats with understanding the defensive space. And when we bring together both the threat information with understanding vulnerabilities, you build this magical system of being able to put mitigation in place quicker. Got it. And any examples of things you've sort of nipped in the bud maybe in the last year? We focused on a lot of things. One of the examples that you've likely seen is we've supported, you know, when we look and find vulnerabilities in critical software, such as Microsoft Exchange, we actually work with the vendor to say, hey, here's a vulnerability that you have. Let's develop a patch or a mechanism to help better protect against active exploitation, and let's roll it out to customers as quickly as possible. And so that was something that we facilitated here out of the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center. And everybody has Microsoft. A lot of people do, yes. And what about the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA? They do similar type of work. Do you collaborate with them, or do you fight over the companies you're going to deal with, or how does that work? No, we have great collaboration with our CISA counterparts. Obviously, they have the mandate and mission to reduce the risk to the national and critical infrastructure. We have a fundamental understanding of the foreign cyber threats. And when you bring those two narratives together, what you've really created is scope, span, and depth, being able to talk to our industry partners. So we talk with them almost daily. And I've come to think that the assumption on most operators' parts is that the phishing schemes the types of hacking that's going on outside of phishing, but the old-fashioned network hacking and rooting around is of foreign origin. But is that really the case? I mean, do you have any sense of how much originates just from bad people right here in the good old USA versus the foreigns? Sometimes it's not about sophistication. It's really about the easiest door to open. If you have very low-level vulnerabilities in your system, adversaries are not going to have to use exquisite or sophisticated techniques to get in. They're going to use whatever enables them to facilitate that access. And so, you know, we can see nation-state actors using the most sophisticated capabilities, or we can see them taking advantage of simple techniques. It's really what enables them to get to what they want. But what I'm asking is, say, out of every hundred threats or attacks, are 90% of them of foreign origin, or do we still get a good percentage of them coming from within the U.S.? Yeah, that question would be easier to answer if I had a better understanding of all of the threats in aggregate. Unfortunately, we don't. We see a significant amount of cyber threats, you know, originating every day from our foreign adversaries. That's not to say that, that we see a full picture of all threats currently being directed at U.S. critical infrastructure, though. 
Got it. And also, just a detail, you have a program called the Protective Domain Name System Pilot. What is that and what does it aim to do? It essentially is a service that verifies the domain that you're trying to get to and it prevents a user from phishing attempts, malware, and blocking an adversary from gaining access to your system. Think of protected DNS as is you're picking up the phone. We call it the phone book of the internet. You dial a number, you expect to get to the number, connect with the person you're trying to reach. If in fact, unfortunately, our adversaries create a technique where they redirect you to a malicious domain or the phone number you don't want to reach or the person you don't want to talk to, we're trying to ensure that doesn't happen. So you'll always get to where you're trying to go. All right. And by the way, as an NSA employee, are you able personally to go inside the gate and maybe get a refresh from people on the inside as to what the latest things to look out for are? Oh, absolutely. So the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center really is the bridge between the classified environment and the unclassified environment. So I go in the fence line all the time, but I will tell you that the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center is a beautiful facility outside the fence line with beautiful parking. So I stay out here a lot. And then uh, I communicate with my colleagues via classified means if need be. And you don't have a little place cut in the fence where you can just slip in and out easily, do you? You have to go all the way around by the tattoo parlors and Uh, through the gate. Yeah, not if I want to get arrested by our security crew. I'm not going through any small holes in a fence. All right. Morgan Adamski is director of the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center at the National Security Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.